This is Software Defined Survival, where we explore how software-defined systems are changing the business of AVIT. Today on Software Defined Survival. Uh, IoT is going to be the next big guiding force for the audiovisual industry as to where we go and how we function. It gives us the ability to generate the highest quality video picture possible with the lowest amount of latency on a standard 10 gig ethernet network. The AV industry, we are really the plastic surgeons of the IT world. What is the number one thing everybody wants to do on every job site in the world? Hello there, my name is Patrick Murray, and today's guest has a long history working with AV manufacturers like Audio Video Corporation and Crestron Electronics, where he worked as a director for almost 20 years. And I remember one of the first Crestron courses I attended in New Jersey, it must have been around the year 2000, he was a big part of getting to know what the company was all about and how their technology worked. He is currently VP of technology at Wirestorm, a manufacturer of pro-AV signal distribution and control solutions. And I'm really excited to speak with someone with so much experience in AV manufacturing and hear what their view is on the changing role of software in AV. So Dave Silverstein, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Patrick. Glad to be here. Is there anything about that introduction that you'd care to correct or expand upon? Uh, no, I think you did a great job. Thank you. LinkedIn is a big help with that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, tell us, I like to hear the origin story because nobody really grows up saying they want to be an AV. So how did you wind up in this uh, niche industry? Okay. So uh, interesting enough, you're absolutely right. Nobody, I think, grows up wanting to be an AV. Uh, I actually grew up wanting to be a television producer. Uh, that turned me into a salesperson selling broadcast television equipment to broadcast TV stations. Uh, the company I worked for, Audio Video Corporation, also had a systems division. And the systems division was installing three-gun projectors and all kinds of fancy stuff into a large corporate project. Uh, and they were having trouble configuring and setting up uh, something called a Gentner system, which at the time allowed you to take audio from a phone call and turn it into audio that you could put on a recorder. Uh, very commonplace in my world because TV stations and radio stations use them to do call-in radio shows and TV shows. Uh, so they asked me to go to the site and check it out and see what was wrong. I did. I resolved that issue. Uh, and then before I left, I said, is there anything else that uh, you might that you need help with that I could somehow help. They happen to have a production, a broadcast production switcher for switching TV shows uh, that was being controlled by an AMX control system and they couldn't get all the commands to work off the AMX control system. Uh, so I said, I certainly know production switchers, uh, so I'll help you out and see what happens. Uh, the AMX programmer showed up, kind of taught me how to program. We resolved the issues that were there. And all of a sudden, before you know it, I was in the systems group. Uh, and from there, I was just in AV and that's how it rolled. Very interesting. So, so you kind of stepped in it. <laughs> You're bringing up, a, bringing up a lot of memories with CRT projectors and, uh -huh. and, and Gentner audio processors, which I believe became clear one, right? Right. That's correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then... Uh, 
And then the whole broadcast background, I find kind of interesting because there are a lot of similarities in AV, but um, it is a different beast altogether. But once in a while, you'll see like AV equipment, like an AMX controller, or even Crestron controlling these broadcast studios and kind of have to wonder why, if that's really the best way to do things. Uh, you know, that's, that's, an interesting, that's an interesting thought. And in some cases it is, in some cases it isn't. I built many a broadcast facility, uh, cable facility that used a Crestron system, for example, or an AMX system to run the front end. Um, uh, back in the day, you know, again, I'm showing my age here, but back in the day you used to uh, take, a, take a tape of the show that you, that you recorded uh, and you would play it and then you would simultaneously take 100 VHS players and put them into record. And that's actually how you made copies to then sell to the community because people used to buy the VHS copy of what they saw. Uh, PBS, for example, was big doing that. Uh, and the issue becomes when you get into a TV station, uh, the guy the guy putting the uh, tape on the player uh, is union. And once you have union staff loading machine, 100 machines and unloading 100 machines, et cetera, et cetera, uh, cost becomes pretty expensive. And they, they try and really keep the cost down on these duplications that they're selling to the community. Uh, so, for example, you put a Crestron system on the front end so a non-union person could then start and stop the recordings appropriately uh, to get something produced. So interesting why uh, Crestron AMX front-ended some of these spaces, but that's how things slide into the broadcast space. Traditionally, in a broadcast world, you throw more, three more people at it, and they sit there, and those people just run it. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, the the way the automation helped to uh, save costs and, and bring the costs mm-hmm. down. Right, but even in, in, if you look at today's broadcast facility, you know there's not there are no camera people anymore. All the cameras are robotic, and there's one person driving five cameras. They've had their own. The broadcast industry has had its own level of automation that's come in over the years, uh, but it's not been from. But their choices have not come from the audiovisual community, uh, really. You know, if I go back in AV long enough, everything that AV did was kind of surrounded around the broadcast community. We used to put three quarter inch tape machines into conference rooms so people could play back video at a higher quality. Uh, And the one thing that happened, the big benchmark that changed it uh, was the advent of the DVD player. Uh, When the DVD player came out, it was totally a consumer product. Nobody in the broadcast industry cared about it, touched it, used it for anything. Yet the AV industry immediately turned to it and said, hey, we need to have these in our boardroom. This needs to be part of our solution. And before you know it, XLR connectors are being replaced by RCA connectors on certain devices. Uh, and really what happened was the industry, the AV industry started looking to the consumer electronics industry as the guide for what was coming next and where they were going to go, as opposed to looking to the broadcast industry. Uh, if you look at today's world, today we're right on the cusp of uh, the AV industry changing where they're looking again. And rather than looking solely to the consumer electronics industry, we're now starting to change and look to the Internet of Things, if you will, the IoT or the Internet as to what is the next big thing? Where is the AV industry going to go next? Uh, so for as much as people want to talk about convergence of the two, I think the internet and the IT community specifically 
uh, IoT is going to be the next big guiding force for the audiovisual industry as to where we go and how we function. That is a, a really interesting perspective that I never heard before. Um, I actually cut my teeth at a, a broadcast uh, systems integrator, and we would sit on benches and, and solder tons of XLR connectors and crimp hundreds and hundreds of BNCs. And I like the way um, you kind of said that the DVD player is how the AV industry started taking direction from another place. And it even affected the hardware that we use, like the, the connectors changed because of that. And then drawing that back to how IoT and IT is directing us into the future. Um, I think that's a really interesting perspective that we could learn a lot from. So if you, if you take it down to that connector level, a BNC becomes an RCA and now it becomes uh, RJ45. Are there any other uh, practical effects that you could maybe comment on that? how IoT and, and IT is influencing what we do? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So as certainly as a hardware manufacturer, we have to start looking at what is IoT. What is IoT? How does it work? How does it relate to everything else? Uh, we're, the industry is going to try a bunch of stuff. We're going, to, we're going to take control systems and put them in the cloud because we think that's IoT. You know, we're, we're going to try some little things like that to fit into the community. Uh, the real answer is, if you look at the way we build product and the way the IoT community builds product, they are significantly different. And what really needs to be determined is, can we as an industry move into that IoT community and function the way, an I, the way other IoT devices function? Or do we have to stay with our own configuration like we are today. Uh, and a lot of that is to be determined. So uh, let, me, let me break it down a little better. When you look at IoT and, you know, IoT is in essence somewhat a buzzword for the larger community and people that are buying stock and those kind of things. But realistically, if we break it down to IoT, IoT is a lot of uh, production line management or system flow management right? Whenever somebody says IOT, they always say things like sensors, right? So I'm going to have a, an occupancy sensor that's going to tell me something. Uh, and that's, that's true in the audiovisual industry, as well as a number of different industries. The difference being when it's IOT, the sensor just says what it, it supplies its data, and it has no other ramification, nothing else to do. For most AV components, the, com the components then respond and react to that. And on its, on its own, the component then executes something. You know, like a thermostat, for example, not only takes the temperature of the room, but it also turns on and off the boilers and air conditioning units based on that temperature. In an IoT scenario, there would be a temperature sensor that would communicate to the larger server or the, the IoT management platform. And then that platform would go to a different set of relays to turn on the heating system or turn on the cooling system. So all that inherent logic that we as AV people build into what we think is a complete component that we can plug in and it just runs. Really, when you look at the IoT model, no one's going to build an 
individual standalone complete component anymore. They're going to build some type of sensor or control device, and you're going to have to rely on the larger IoT software configuration to dictate what and when happens based on those criteria. Interesting perspective, right? I, IoT buzzword, but I, I, we've been doing um, networks of things for a long time. It just hasn't cool. been an internet, right? Serial IR connecting things, however we connected them. It was still a little network. Correct. Very um, much so. And we've had network devices communicating with each other for a long time. But when you look at what is the IoT model, the things that the IBMs of the world have set up, the uh, HP enterprises of the world have set up is all the logic, all the commands, all the functionality is within their server base and their code. And the things at the end point uh, just become things. It's the internet of things. So these individual things just either report what their status is or execute when they're told. Standalone, they, they have no functionality at all. And that's different than the way, currently than the way AV components are certainly built. Right. So I'm beginning to understand where you're coming from, where we would make this highly customized touch panel and the event trigger would be somebody pressing a button on that panel. Now it's just this generic thing that's in the room, whether it be a presence detector or a certain temperature that's reached that triggers the logic. So the event triggers are kind of different in the IoT world. How do you see that playing out with the systems that we use? Take a typical conference room, for example. Uh, the, int the interesting part is from the IoT port of view, things like occupancy sensors, motion sensors, people counters, those are all ready, readily available in their environment uh, and are very, very easy to execute on. Things like uh, individual input where you have to touch a screen on a touch panel, that's a, that's a harder thing for the IoT community to establish and work with. Uh, so instead, the IoT community has moved to voice recognition uh, because, again, that works in a, in, the, in a format that they understand where you simply say a word or a set of words and it goes to them and then they go and execute on it and do something. The whole concept of the touchscreen is the touchscreen goes to the control system and the control system processes that logic. And that's where the IoT community can't relate to the way AV operates. They just function differently. So and I think we're going to see a lot of voice recognition coming into the environment for a short period of time. Uh, and then the users will kind of identify that maybe voice recognition isn't the right way to start or stop a meeting uh, because it's much more in the public domain. Yeah, that remains to be seen what that kind of public acceptance is is like right. they, they will they will start moving you know that stuff will eventually start moving back to your phone or to your you know internet enabled glasses or whatever other technology is there right uh but the first time somebody walks into a meeting room and says you know alexa start my meeting and alexa comes back and says sure dave are you ready to are you ready to start the firing half the company meeting okay and everybody else in the room goes, what? It's yeah. going to be a problem for people. So and they're going to realize that public conversation or open conversation is not necessarily acceptable in their meeting spaces, break room. And they're going to want to, again, personalize that 
somehow and keep it within their own person and not within the entire group. Right. So, so the application of the technology will make or break it. Mm-hmm. Because uh, I, I, what I, I see is there's a huge hesitancy to using voice control. But once there are certain types of people that once they have it, they never want to go back. But that example that you gave where if you misuse it, if the calendar entry, if I believe my calendar entry is only for my eyes, and then this uh, speaker in the room reads it back to me, that, right. that's me using the technology in the wrong way. But it doesn't matter if, if that's even possible, then there could be some backlash. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting take. Yeah. And those, those, those things are going to happen. We're going to bump into that kind of stuff. Uh, certainly from my previous life, uh, not until people put scheduling panels outside of their conference rooms did people start screaming and yelling that they had to block the name of the conference that was going in there. Yeah, sure. Sensitive information. Mm-hmm. So can we switch gears a little bit and maybe tell me a little bit about your most successful project and what made it so rewarding for you? All right. So that's an interesting question. That's why I ask it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hmm. So I guess, Patrick, let me, let me break down that question into a couple of different categories. Uh, the first one is if I say, what was my, what is my most rewarding, what is my most challenging project? And, you know, what was the most rewarding within my current Wirestorm environment? Uh, I have to say that, you know, making product is certainly something that is very exciting and very rewarding. There's, there's nothing better than spending, you know, as long as it takes, uh, and in some cases years, working through the entire definition of a product to get it operating, bringing it to market, showing it to people, uh, having people accept it, uh, and then see it move into the marketplace and work correctly. That there's, a, there's a certain excitement that goes with that every time you do it, even if you're, you know, even if you're just the sales guy promoting that new product that came out, or you're the training guy training about a new product, the whole concept of rolling a new product, uh, building a new product and rolling it into the marketplace is very exciting. Certainly for me, I think it is for most people. Uh, And as VP of technology, that's kind of what I do every day. So in today's world, everything I'm doing is very exciting. Uh, There's no doubt about it. I don't know that I can pick out one thing over another thing. Uh, I do have some products coming in within the next year uh, that are very exciting for me. And when I get them to a point that uh, we're ready to talk about them, uh, I think I'll be jumping up and down and telling everybody about it because, uh, you know, it's hard for me to contain myself. Uh, so in today's world, a lot of what I'm doing is very, very exciting. Uh, in terms of some of the things I did in my previous life, um, for an interesting period of time uh, at Audio Video Corporation, we actually built cable TV stations. And I got to say, it was kind of fun to build a cable TV station. Uh, If you look at the cable TV industry, uh, there are plenty of people that work in a TV station and run the TV station, uh, both the head end as well as studios, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But that, that systems, the equipment, the spaces, they don't get updated. And when it's really time to say, we need a new cable system, you know, from the ground up. We need a new head end, if you will. Uh, the people at that organization don't have the skills to just build something from scratch. Uh, so at 
audio video corporation, we actually went in and built new cable plants from scratch and then handed these people the keys and said, here's your brand new cable station. Now run it for the next 20 years. Uh, and I have to say that was very exciting. Again, it's all about making things in its own special way. But uh, building cable stations was a was a pretty exciting part of my life, I would say. Interesting. So the the reason I ask that question is because I'm I'm looking for commonalities so that when I start working on a project, I could kind of. Uh, focus on those things. So from my perspective as a programmer and a systems designer, I'm working on a much smaller scale project basis, uh, right. a, a big complicated room or a bunch of rooms together. And it sounds like it's the same idea. The joy that you get out of it is just creating this thing. Of course, you're operating on a much bigger scale as a manufacturer or, or a cable studio, but there are usually elements of that creative process of uh, the project management of getting it up and running um, that make it really rewarding for people that people look back and say, I liked doing that job because of these three reasons. Mm -hmm. And those are the things that I'm kind of looking for with that question. Yeah. On a, on a side note, because um, among other things, because you did a little broadcast uh, and certainly some programming. Uh, one of the things that we did many years ago that was actually kind of fun was um, this was a, uh, it was a cable station in a place called Independence, Missouri. Uh, and one of their requirements was, now you have to think back a long time ago. Uh, one of their requirements was they wanted to allow certain people to be able to interrupt programming on every channel on the cable system and put in a special announcement. And this is, this is before emergency messaging existed. There was only emergency broadcast messaging. Uh, so if something happened, the broadcast channels would be interrupted with a special announcement, but cable programming would still continue because there was no concept at the time of uh, emergency messaging over cable systems. So, uh, they, you know, they came to me, they came to us as part of building out this plant and said, we have to, you know, if there's a problem, we have to interrupt HBO. We have to interrupt ESPN. We have to, how are we going to do this? So, uh, you know, kind of a big challenge, if you will, uh, because it's not normal to interrupt cable TV programming. Uh, the good news was in this particular design, we happened to bring everything in and break it down to baseband video and switch it in a 256 by 256 router uh, and then push it and then remodulate it and push it all back out the other side. Uh, so the end result was, I don't know if you know this company, but I used something called a Chiron Cody and a Chiron, the Chiron Cody generated a, a full screen messaging page and I could choose and change which ones I wanted. I used a Crestron control system at the time. It was called a CNMS. That's how long ago it was. And I used a telephone interface card so that somebody could call in. They had to enter a password and based on the four digit passcode they entered, I knew who they were. I then proceeded to pick the right slide on the Chiron Cody and I took the audio from there from the phone call and routed it and did a route and took Chiron Cody video audio from the phone and sent it to every output on the switch, memorized the entire position of the switch before I did it. Uh, and then pulled the entire, once the call was done, dumped everything back to the position that it was in before monitoring any switch commands that occurred in the middle in case I had switched programming and had to switch to a different channel as I went. So kind of challenging, especially for a CNMS, but uh, that's how I pulled it off. 
Uh, and they seemed to be very happy. They had seven people, the mayor, the fire, uh, the police chief, the fire department chief, the et cetera, et cetera, could all call in. Uh, and there was one guy in particular, the seventh guy, his name was Fred. Uh, and the, the Chiron Cody slide said, this is a message from Fred. And ultimately it turned out Fred lived on the west side of town on a little hill. And Fred had the best view of when the tornado was coming. So Fred would just call in and say, I see the funnel cloud coming, everybody hide now, which was really the issue why they put this system in. Uh, so even though we were building a cable, cable TV system, there was a lot of other stuff that went with it. Uh, and those individual little pieces become very exciting as well as the, the large scale of, hey, here's your cable TV system, have a nice day. I like that story a lot. It, it has a, a lot of the elements that come up quite a bit. It was a, a challenging um, project. You had to come up with a clever solution, which um, put together all these different bits and pieces. And then at the end, there was this real world effect where you're letting people know that a tornado is coming, which mm -hmm. uh, just kind of um, 10x is the cool factor of the whole thing. Right. And the, the, <laughs> the end result was it worked so well, the cable company had to resort to fining the city for using it too much. Really? <laughs> yeah, because the, the, the head of the buildings department would call in and say, hey, there's a water main break on 5th Street. Nobody drive on 5th Street. And it was 8.55 p.m. And they killed <laughs> the last five minutes of whatever that HBO show was that everybody was watching at the time. That's funny. The cliffhanger and, would get interrupted. Right, right. And, then what hap and then what happens is people would call the cable company and ask for a refund on their HBO subscription. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Got interrupted. So they ended up putting in a policy, you know, to stop the basically from, from nonsense interruptions. Right. So, yeah. So, so that's kind of the user experience. What is, yep. <laughs> what defines an emergency? When are we right. allowed to right. use this thing? Mm -hmm. So um, shifting back to Wirestorm, I know sure. that you're they're part of the SDVOE alliance. Can can you talk about more about the SDVOE alliance, what it means to you as a manufacturer, what you've why you've joined and what it kind of means for your customers for integrators? Sure. So, uh let me start with the SDVOE alliance uh in its basic form, it gives us the ability to generate the highest quality video picture possible with the lowest amount of latency on a standard 10 gig ethernet network. That's the reason Wirestorm looked in, looks into it and takes it as an, as an advantage. That's why the other 40 some members of the SD, SDVOA Alliance uh, are looking to the solution. Now, once we say, okay, we've got the ability to do this, really the software-defined video over, over Ethernet Alliance, which is where SDVOE comes from, uh, is really about, if you will, the API, or because it is software-defined, now everybody in the Alliance all works together. It all operate, they all operate within the same environment. So much like the IT world operates, everybody who's SDVOE can talk to each other. We already know the commands because there's a common API thread as opposed to just, hey, we bought the same chip and put something together. There's a common API that we can use with each other. Uh, so I, if I at Wirestorm have a Wirestorm transmitter, for example, and I want to, and somebody wants to connect it to a Barco projector or a Christie projector, 
that has an SDVOE receiver within it, uh, they can con- not only can they communicate to each other, but they can control each other and send messages back and forth appropriately. Uh, and that's a real differentiator compared to um, some of the other platforms that are out there. Let's use uh, let's do HDBase-T, for example. HDBase-T certainly has an Ethernet path to pass data back and forth. It has 232 path to pass data back and forth. It has IR to pass IR data back and forth. But it has no API. It has no standard to say what is each, each device going to do at each end. SDVOE brings that API standard to the platform so everybody can operate evenly across the board. And that's really why you see Audinate joining the SDVOE Alliance, because just like Dante components can all talk and share data back and forth. Hey, if you're Dante, I'm Dante, everybody's good. SDVOE kind of follows that same methodology. And I think SDVOE and Dante together are going to make even a stronger program for everyone. Sure. The more um, the more standardized we become, the better it is for the end user. And that was certainly one of the shortcomings of HTBase-T is that, all right, it was kind of the same technology, but everybody did it in their own way. So the hardware wasn't compatible. And it's the same thing with any kind of proprietary solution. Um, you're kind of uh, locked in to that solution only. And if things go down the line, maybe you, for whatever reason, you just don't have that flexibility to combine different solutions. And that's a great benefit for the end user. What are some benefits for integrators? Uh, well, the, the benefits for the integrators uh, ultimately become very similar in terms of they do have compatibility between manufacturers now uh, that they didn't see before. Uh, simply from a picture quality point of view, um, the ability to deliver the highest quality picture uh, as well as the lowest latency of any solution out there means that you can actually move to an IP-based deliverable platform uh, and we don't have to rely on dedicated wires from place to place as we did in the past. Uh, and that, that really becomes important because uh, you know, at some point, someday, somebody's going to want to put something else there you don't want to have to abandon that old wire and say, okay, we're all done. Uh, if it's Ethernet, it's Ethernet. Let's get on that network and, and let it roll, so to speak. Uh, so as, you know, as 4K gets exhausted and we move to 16K and 32K and who knows how many K before it's all over, um, we need to have the, you know, the infrastructure. We can't be changing the infrastructure every time we move into that space. Uh, and that's part of the beauty of SDVOE is uh, we can now get onto a standard 10 gig Ethernet network, which is standard for everybody to use. Uh, and when we get to, you know, 8K, 16K, whatever, that same network is going to be the infrastructure that's there. Uh, where some of the other things, uh, coax, for example, uh, to carry SDI signals, as we all know, we're starting to exhaust the ability of that cabling structure. Oh, now I need two cables. I need five cables, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so moving from a, from a dedicated path, even an HD-based T path, which is uh, kind of uh, tapped out where it is, uh, as these resolutions go up more and more, uh, we need to be able to work with something that's going to be consistent across the board. And Ethernet is certainly something that's going to be consistent across the board. Yeah, definitely. Um, you hit on a few points there that uh, a network, 
is designed to handle many systems at the same time. So this idea of having our own little AV network is kind of going away and uh, also upgrading, right? The uh, infrastructure that is kind of future-proof. I've heard stories of Cat3 cables still existing and working quite well in buildings today. Yeah, it's, it's funny, but you know, 30 years ago, this cable was installed and if it still works because it's standardized, um, it's, it's a place where we have to move to. And I think that was pretty clear at ISC this, this past year and probably Infocom, which I didn't attend, that everything is moving to uh, IP. So do you have any feedback from integrators on how they're dealing with this, this change uh, about getting on the network and, and working more with the IT department? Um, <laughs> feedback is an interesting statement. This, this, go, this goes all the way back to that whole conversation of convergence. Uh, and everybody seems to think that AV and IT are converging into one um, I don't necessarily feel that way. I think AV still has its very unique place. Uh, the difference being in any industry, and the IT industry is pretty large. Uh, so if you look at the IT industry today, uh, there are people that build server farms, and that's all they do. There are people that write databases, and that's all they do. There are people that build web pages, and that's all they do. There are people that write middleware to make things communicate with each other, and that's all they do. Because the industry is so large, no one, no one person can know everything about the industry. Uh, and that's true with any industry as they, as they build and grow, right? If I uh, long established industry, I'll look to the medical industry. You know, of course, there are general people, but right now everybody is a specialist. You need all these different specialists and there's special categories uh, because the medical industry is so large. Uh, so I like to use the medical industry as a great example. Uh, and the simple answer is, I would never hire a heart surgeon to do my plastic surgery, and I would never hire a plastic surgeon to do my heart surgery. And if we look at that in the same way, the AV industry, we are really the plastic surgeons of the IT world. We make, we make people look good. We make people sound good. That's what our job is, is to make that experience at the end the best that is possible for the people that are seeing it. And because we're addressing that experience, we are really the plastic surgeons. Let's not think that we're going to be a heart surgeon. Let's not say I'm the AV guy and I'm gonna come in and rebuild your entire router and server farm. That's not our place, that's not where we should be. We should concentrate on the stuff that we know best. Now, the other side of it is, doesn't matter what your specialty is, you're still a doctor. You still need to know how blood flows, how air moves through, how the lungs work. You need to know all the basics of the body, regardless of what your specialty is. And that's the one small piece that I think we're missing in the AV world is we need to learn the more of the basics of IT so that we can communicate with the other people in IT and function with all the other people in IT. Once, once we get to that level, we don't need to be IT experts. We don't need to go that far. We need to know the basics of the IT body, and then we need to be the plastic surgeons, and we need to be experts in our field that makes us different than everybody else in the IT world that are experts in their field. 
That's a really great explanation. And I really appreciate that analogy of us being plastic surgeons, but we're still a doctor. Um, I'm tempted to ask what you think are some basic things that AV technicians, engineers should be doing to kind of bone up on their IT skills. But I think it's kind of obvious. Maybe you could do CCNA, take some Cisco courses. There are tons of resources online. I wonder if there'll be any kind of official thing for AV to, to say, okay, I know the network basics and I still see some kind of resistance to, uh, to moving this direction. Can you comment on that at all? Um, I, yes, <laughs> I do see some resistance to all this. I think it's ill-founded. Um, I think part of the problem is we say things like, oh yeah, just go, just go get a CCNA or go get Cisco certified. Uh, and without a path, without a direction for people to go and get those kind of things, it's hard for them to start. They don't know where, where, where do I go become CCNA? You know, that, that's, that's where people get stuck is how do I do that? Uh, so I certainly look for opportunities where that kind of content, that kind of information exists. Uh, certainly in today's world, uh, learning over the internet is a very powerful tool. Uh, and believe it or not, LinkedIn has a whole learning section that you can sign up for. And within that learning section, you can learn all your CCNA as well as many other subject matters. Uh, but they do a great job with overall uh, basics of Ethernet, switching direction, et cetera, that, that is very clear and concise and, and probably a good place to start if you say, hey, I don't, I don't know anything about networking, for example. Uh, I found LinkedIn has a ton of content there that's available. It's been vetted and tested. So I'm not just looking on the internet. And as we all know, uh, the internet is full of every truth and every lie all at the same time. It's up to you to vet which is which. Uh, I think link, LinkedIn is doing that vetting for us to make sure that we're getting clear and concise information. So um, I would certainly encourage everybody, everybody to look to that direction for some basic uh, IP knowledge, and you can build all the way through as far as you want to go. Yeah, yeah the, the resources really aren't the issue. Um, I just wonder if it's the motivation sometimes, but I guess as these solutions get specified, uh, that'll be the motivation in itself. You can't mm -hmm. install these systems and make them work without that kind of knowledge. Right, right. And many, and many of us in the many of us in the industry are trying to make it as easy as possible for uh, AV people that want to move into the IT environment. Uh, so, for, ex for example, in the SDVOE world, um, Netgear now has uh, four different switches that are available. All you have to do is buy the right model switch. The switch is all pre-configured for SDVOE, so you just plug in your SDVOE devices and they work. Uh, and that way you don't have to know how to configure a switch or why you're configuring a switch, if you will. Uh, so we're certainly trying to make it easier. We at Wirestorm, as well as many other manufacturers, uh, we, can, we will go ahead and configure a switch uh, for somebody. We'll take a Cisco switch. We'll go through it. We'll write down every step that you have to do in order to configure that switch to get it to work. Uh, we'll also then take that configuration file and make that available. So if you want to just dump our configuration file in, your switch will run. But if you really want to go through every step and see what buttons you're clicking and why, uh, we have that documented out for you. Uh, we also have a generic document that says, if you have a network switch, you need to turn this on for this reason. You need to turn this on and set it to this format 
for this reason. Uh, so you can kind of go and learn what are the th- what are these things of a switch? Why are you turning them on? Why do I need them? You know, uh, what's IGMP or uh, the other kind of things that are and and why do we need them with video and we don't with audio, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so we're trying to add some education there as well as some guidance uh, so that people can broaden their horizon as they start learning these uh, IT paths. Uh, but, you know, everybody has a job. They want to get it done. Uh, and like I say to everybody, what is the number one thing everybody wants to do on every job site in the world? Sign off. And the answer is go home. Yep. Right. And if buying a switch that's already configured gets you to go home, then buy a switch that's already configured and go home. Sounds good to me. All right. So um, are there any plans for the future that you'd like to share with us? Yeah, sure. Uh, so at Wirestorm, uh, just like everybody else, uh, you alluded to it earlier, uh, the concept of having that AV network uh, is really kind of going away. AV, AV devices are really going to become part of the network, just like everything else is part of the network. Uh, there are some challenges with that in terms of, you know, switch configurations and those kind of things. There's, there are even some challenges in device requirements and how they operate. Uh, so we at Wirestorm are certainly working on uh, a whole collection of security stacks so that uh, when we are put into a large corporate type network and there are large security requirements, we can meet those requirements like everybody, like all the other IT devices that are on the network. Uh, and most of us AV guys have been hiding behind a subnet or hiding behind a router somewhere. Uh, and I think, you know, that's, that part's kind of going away. So we have to, like everybody else, uh, get ourselves into the security world and make sure we're compatible with it. Uh, I also see whether it's Dante or AES67 or uh, whatever it is. Now that we have video going on to the IP network, uh, audio has been on an IP network for a long period of time. Uh, but now we're kind of converging together uh, so that one device, that one encoder needs to be able to make both video streams that are appropriate for video devices and audio streams that are appropriate for audio devices. And I think you're going to see a lot more of that. Uh, use SDVOE and uh, Dante uh, joining the Alliance as a great example uh, where now we've got audio and video on the same network. The switch is then going to ter- determine and help guide what goes where. Uh, and again, we don't have to be pulling separate wires for everything. Sounds like a nice roadmap to uh, wrap things up with. If anyone would like to get in touch with you, how would they go about doing that? Uh, yeah, it's pretty simple. Uh, you can certainly find me. Uh, it's David Silberstein on LinkedIn. Twitter, and you can always email me. It's david.silberstein at wirestorm.com. Great. Dave, thanks a lot for being on the podcast. Patrick, thank you for having me. It's been great. Thanks for listening to Software Defined Survival. I hope you found it useful, and maybe it inspires you to try out something new this week. If you have any questions, go to softwaredefinedsurvival.com and click the appropriate button. I'd love to answer your questions on the air. And if you'd like to help spread the word, please subscribe, comment, and share it with your friends. Thanks.